The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word this morning, a needy people, a people who are blind in and of themselves, a people who, whose hearts are deceptive, whose hearts often lead us down paths that we should not go. And so, Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, you would, you would give us direction, you would give us guidance, you would give us assurance, you would give us joy, and that you would teach our hearts to sing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up as the youngest of five children in what I would call a pretty religious family. Uh, we went to church every Sunday. We uh, went to religion class on Saturdays. We went through confirmation. We did all of the things we were supposed to do. And in our family home, we had a Bible. It was this big white Bible, kind of decorative looking. And it was located on the coffee table in our, in our family room. And we would pass by this Bible dozens, if not hundreds of times a day, and yet, we so rarely opened that Bible. I remember that one day, my mom did open the Bible to show me what was inside. And as she opened up the Bible, out fell out papers. They were our birth certificates and certain articles. I didn't realize this, but we were actually a part of a great American heritage. There is a blog that talks about finding out genealogy and talks about the importance of family Bibles. And it says, at one time, Bibles were sold in stores available from, from mail order catalogs and offered door-to-door by door-to-door salesmen. And even non-religious families would buy these Bibles because the major selling point of these Bibles was to hold their records or register. In some cases, the Bibles can actually be used as vital records if the publication precedes the date of a birth or a marriage or something of that sort. It goes on to say that Bibles often had tucked in them, neat, uh, neatly tucked in them, things like newspaper clippings of anniversaries or obituaries, or it had funeral cards, sometimes bookmarks or a marriage license, photos, letters, cards, even handwritten notes on scraps of paper. And so for so many families like my family's, the Bible was not much more than a sacred scrapbook. It was a sacred file cabinet. And I'm curious, what is the Bible to you? The American Bible Society has published the 2016 State of the Bible, and it's powered by the Barner Group, if you're familiar with who that is. And it reports that over the past six years, the percentage of people who view the Bible as a book written merely by men, not having a divine origin, has more than doubled from 10% to 22%. And those who believe the Bible to not be sufficient for all of life have, has risen from 23% to 33%. Now, with that being said, it's so interesting in these research statistics that people still have a great respect and regard for the Bible. 64% believe that it is the most influential teaching in human history. 66% believe the Bible holds all we need to know in order to live a meaningful life. 80% believe that it is sacred literature. And yet no more than 25% read it on a consistent 
basis. See, all of us come to the Bible with different views. There are some of us who, who see it as a profane thing. We come to it and hate it because we think it is guilt-laden. Maybe we come to it and, and we, we respect it, but it is confusing to us and it is disinteresting to us. Maybe even some of us come to it with great delight many of the times, and yet we fail to prioritize it in our life. Wherever you stand in this spectrum, I think all of us can grow in valuing the Word of God. And so today we are going to sit at the feet of Jesus, and we're going to let him teach us how he views the Bible. If you would please open up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 20. It is page 810 in the Red Bible and page 1025 in the Children's Bible. We are continuing this summer series in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a sermon in which Jesus is uh, uh, teaching us about a counterculture called the kingdom of God, a counterculture that is to be lived out through his people, through his church. It is a culture that is rooted in and governed in and directed from the word of God. And so as we read today's passage, if you are able, I'd like to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for God's word. As again, we focus on our hearts on the goodness of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. This is Jesus' teaching. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In that same 2016 report by the American Bible Society, they put a couple charts, and I love charts because I'm a visual learner, and there are a couple visuals that help us understand where we are in America with our engagement with the Bible. We see here 17% of Americans are biblically engaged. They're, they're in the word. They're reading the word. 37%, the largest majority, are Bible-friendly. They respect the word, but maybe are not engaged, maybe not reading it as much as they would hope. 24% are Bible-neutral. They're okay with it. They're not for it. They're not against it. And then there is 22% that are Bible-skeptics. They don't believe that it is the very word of God. Next slide. Here we see habits of Bible reading. Uh, you can tell here uh, at the very top are those who read the Bible every day, which is about 10% of Americans. And then another 15% read it about four times a week. And then as you go down, you see the lower 75% uh, read it less than once a week. Go ahead and go to the next chart. 
Here we see the top three ways non-Christians perceive the Bible. 30% believe the Bible is a useful book of moral teaching. 27% say the Bible is a dangerous book of religious dogma used for centuries to oppress people. And 19% say the Bible is an outdated book with no relevance for today. And the reasons why I want to bring up those statistics to you is because I think many times we live in a bubble. We live in a culture that, that respects the Bible, um, a, a church culture that appreciates the Bible. And yet there are many out there who think the Bible is completely irrelevant. Or there are many out there who, like my family, thought highly of the Bible, but never considered actually opening it to read it. And so today, I think as we encourage our understanding of God's word, as we are reminded of of the attack against the validity and supremacy and relevancy of the Bible, it is so helpful to sit at the feet of Jesus and see how he understood the Bible. And so the first thing we're going to see today is that Jesus believed in the infallibility of God's word. According to Webster's dictionary, dictionary, infallibility means something that is incapable of error or unerring. It's not liable to mislead and, or deceive or even disappoint. Now, this term infallible is a very high standard to put on anything. As a matter of fact, I don't think we would put it on anything except for God himself and his word. And yet the infallibility of God's word is a standard that Jesus emphatically held. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase, the law or the prophets, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament. You see, when Jesus was uh, ministering, Uh, There was not an Old Testament and New Testament because the New Testament had not yet been created. And so they referred to the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, as the law and the prophets or simply as the law. And what Jesus is telling us here is that in his teachings, in no way is he questioning or undermining or removing anything from the Old Testament. Now, it's so interesting that Jesus would need to give this defense that he would need to tell the people, hey, look, I have not come to abolish the law. And as we looked at, we wonder, what is it about Jesus' teaching that would make people think that? Well, as we look forward in chapter 5, we look and see that Jesus is giving this commentary on the word of God. If you just glimpse down chapter 5 in verse 21 and 27, verse 33, 38, and 43, these five times Jesus says, you have heard it said blank in the Bible, but I say to you blank. And so it could perceive, be perceived that Jesus is saying, the Bible says do this, but I tell you to do something completely different. But as we dig into this, what we see is that Jesus is not abolishing the law, but Jesus is rightfully transmitting the law of God, the law and the prophets to show the depth of the law and how to rightly apply the law of God in our hearts. For example, he will say, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments, one of the big ones. But Jesus says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You see, he is taking the law of God and he is revealing the heart of it. And he is pressing it deep into us. And so Jesus is not abolishing the law, but emphasizing the depth and the heart of the law. Jesus continues in verse 18 saying, 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This term iota and dot have often been translated a jot or a tittle. And you can actually see here a picture of it. A jot is, uh, comes from the Hebrew letter yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew Bible. It's kind of like a comma, but raised up in the air. And a tittle is just the little bit to the side of the, of the letter, off to the side. And for us, what it would be, it would be like the line that separates the difference between an O and a Q. That would be a tittle, okay? And so what we see here is that Jesus is saying, not only can you not remove a passage from the Bible, you can't remove a verse from the Bible, you can't even remove a letter or a part of a letter from the Bible because it is infallible. It is sacred. It is perfect. And it is eternally true until heaven and earth pass away. And so even the smallest bits and pieces are in inspired by God himself and are indispensable. Now, there have been a number of people throughout history, way smarter than us, who have sought out to disprove the infallibility of God's word. There's a man named Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. He was a respected archaeologist in Scotland who was so respected that he was knighted, and he was set out to to disprove the Bible, to show the inaccuracies of the book of Acts because he thought the book of Acts was the most ridiculous of all the New Testament books. And after 15 years of research, he was convinced about the infallibility of Scripture, and he greatly disappointed his supporters who wanted him to come forth disproving the validity of the Bible. Then there's Frank Morris, who was an English journalist and an author who again set out to disprove the myth of Christianity, and yet came out with a book called Who Moved the Stone? Leaving hundreds of people, leading hundreds of people to Christ. And then there's Lee Strobel, the journalist of the Chicago Tribune, who for 14 years was an avowed atheist and was freaked out because his wife became a Christian. So he set out to disprove the Bible, to undermine the Bible. And the book he came out with was called The Case for Christ. Josh McDowell in college, wrote papers trying to expose the myth of Christianity and ended up with a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And finally, there is a guy named Andre Cole. How many of you have heard of this guy? Anyone? Okay, one. Andre was a magician, and he created tricks for great magicians. For example, he helped David Copperfield make the Statue of Liberty disappear, if you remember that. And he was commissioned to study the miracles of the Bible to expose them as mere magic tricks and illegitimate. But through his investigation, again, this is how it goes. Andre became a Christian and has dedicated his life to spreading the gospel through his art of magic. The Bible is the very word of God. It is infallible. What do you say about this book? Is it merely human writings, flawed and outdated? Or is it infallible, the word of God? What does your practice say is your view of God? Maybe intellectually you say, yes, I respect this book. I view it as the word of God, but it is absent from your life. It's been said a Bible in the hand is worth two on the shelf. Let me push just a little bit deeper. What is your view of the Old Testament? I know many who, many Christians 
who don't like the Old Testament. Many who say it is not worth their reading. And yet this is the very Bible that Jesus is talking about. Jesus believed in the infallibility of the word of God. Jesus also believed in the authority of the word of God. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And after explaining the infallibility of the Bible, Jesus is warning his disciples not to minimize or dismiss any part of the Old Testament. That the entirety of the Bible should have authority over every part of our life. That should have authority over our head and over our hands and over our heart. And so I want to look through that carefully. First, we see Jesus says that the Bible has authority over our head. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches, that's head, theology, and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. An authority is one who gets to make the final decision. If you are an authority on your, in your family, you get to make the final decision. If you're the authority at work, you get to make the final decision. Our government, in many ways, is an authority. It makes the final decision on many of the laws that we have. And what Jesus is telling us here is that the Bible is to be our authority over our theology, over our teaching. That the Bible is what is true. It makes the final decisions on what is good and what is right. It is the supreme authority over our theology. Let me give you an example. A few months ago, I was walking with a friend um, through the gospel over the course of four weeks. And we would get together and we'd just talk about life. And then we would talk about the little booklets that we were reading. And, and then, they, the, then he would just ask random questions, good questions that he had about the faith. And I remember one time we were sitting down at Chili's and he, he, he looks at me and he says, Hey, do you let women be pastors? Because if you don't, I have a serious issue with that. And so I responded to him asking this question. How do we decide what's right and wrong? How do we do it? Do we decide based on our feelings? And if we decide based on our feelings, do we decide based on our feelings today, last week, or five years ago? Because they're always changing. Or, or how do we decide what's right or wrong? Do we decide based on our culture? And if we decide based on our culture, do we decide on our culture or the culture in Africa or the culture in China? Do we talk about the culture today or we talk about the culture a thousand years or two thousand years? How do we base, how do we discover what is true and what is good? And he, he quickly realized that many times our authority structures are always changing. But there is an authority that is timeless, that is infallible, that is the very word of God. You know, I have heard so many people try several awkward linguistic gymnastics to make the Bible not say something that it very clearly says in order to fit it into their theology. But the truth of the matter is men deny the Bible, not because the Bible contradicts itself. Men deny the Bible because it contradicts man. It contradicts our theology that's made up through culture and through feelings. And so the Bible is the infallible word of God. And so let me ask you, do you let the Bible disagree with you? Do you let it confront you? Do you let it trump your views of, of, of theology, of, 
of politics, of caring for those around us. You see, there are two ways to approach the scripture. We can approach the Bible as ones who have intellectual authority over it and critique it, or we can approach it as ones who sit under its authority and let it critique us. We can either conform the Bible to our theology, or we can conform the, the, our theology to the Bible. Jesus tells us that the Bible is the infallible word of God that is to have authority over our heads, over our minds, over our theology, even when it is not popular with culture or popular with us. The word of God must have authority over our heads. It must also have authority over our hands. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, Jesus is talking about our practice, our hands, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not just want us to agree with the Bible. Jesus wants us to do the Bible. James 1 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, my guess is if, if I took a survey of this congregation, 100% of you, my guess, I could be wrong, but 100% of you would believe in mercy. But God doesn't just want us to believe in mercy. God wants us to actually do mercy. I bet if I asked you, you all would agree in forgiveness. But God doesn't want us just to believe in forgiveness. God wants us to grant forgiveness. And I'm guessing many of you, thinking about sabbatical, would believe in evangelism. But Jesus doesn't want us just to believe in evangelism. God actually wants us to participate in evangelism. The word of God must not only have authority over our heads, it must have authority over our actions, over our hands. And finally, the word of God must have authority over our hearts. Look at verse 20 with me. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think I've always misread this passage, this verse. I've often read this verse thinking that it means, you know what, you cannot be better than the Pharisees or the scribes. And so simply, you know, deny yourself and look to Jesus, which is, which is certainly true. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that the Pharisees and the scribes have a righteousness that was not pleasing to God. You see, their obedience was external, but God wanted internal obedience from the heart. You know, as we move on in Jesus' sermon, we see Jesus continuing to press into the heart. We already talked about the murder, but Jesus also says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, right? That is an outward external action. But Jesus says, I tell you, whoever looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery in his heart. And so what Jesus is telling us here in verse 20 is that God does not want just dry external obedience. That is no proof of your salvation. Proof of your salvation is a transformed heart. 
one that bears the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. One that, a heart that bears fruit of what we read in the Beatitudes, one that is poor in spirit, meek, one that mourns, one is pure in heart, one is merciful. You see, the Pharisees' problem was not that they loved the law of God too much. It was that they loved it too little. They simply wanted to do it externally. But Jesus says, do this in your heart, cherish it in your heart. Don't only do the law, but love the law and love the lawgiver. Today, as you know, is Father's Day. And I'm guessing some of you dads have an idea of maybe a gift that you would want. Maybe it's this ideal fishing pole, right? There's this fishing pole that you've had your eye on that you really want. Let me ask you this. Would you rather your kids giving that, that fishing pole begrudgingly um, because they have to, because it's Father's Day, because if they don't, they'll feel guilty and you'll make them feel guilty. Would you rather them give you that fishing pole because of that? Or would you rather them give you a card that lists out the ways that they love you and that they cherish you and that they enjoy you? I think the answer is very clear. We don't just want people's dry obedience. We want them. We want their heart. God is asking for no different. He doesn't just want you to obey him. He wants you to cherish him. Tim Keller has a quote that I've heard several times but really didn't make sense until today or until this week as I was studying this. He would often say, everyone repents of their bad deeds. Christians and non-Christians, they both repent of their bad deeds, but Christians repent of their good deeds. You see, when we do good things externally, It doesn't stop there. It goes deeper. It goes into our hearts. For example, today you are in church, which is a good thing, a God-glorifying thing. And for someone who does not know God or does not follow Jesus, they may say, hey, I came to church. God is pleased with me. It should go well this week because I went to church. But for the Christian, they come to church and they say, why did I come to church? Did I come to church because my wife made me or because my husband made me or because my parents made me? Did I come to church because I had to, because I'm supposed to? Or did I come to church because I cherish God and I want to come and give him the worship that he deserves? You see, there's two completely different attitudes. And so we could come and we could be obedient. We could come to church and yet through that obedience, repent to God and say, Lord, forgive me for my heart was not in it. I did not cherish you as I should. And so we not only repent of our disobedience, we repent of our obedience because many times it is done with disobedient hearts. And so God wants us to obey, not just externally like the Pharisees did, but from the depth of our heart. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, meaning the Gospels, the New Testament, the Old Testament, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, which is our head, for reproof, which is our heart, for correction, and for training in righteousness with our hands. We are called to search the scriptures, but also to let the scriptures search us, that the word of God may have complete authority over all of our life, over our heads, over our hands, and over our hearts. Now, if by this point, You're feeling guilty, it's because you are. If you don't feel guilty, it's because you're ignorant. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus not only came to declare the infallibility of God's word, that Jesus 
didn't only come to demand holistic submission to the authority of God's word, but Jesus also came to fulfill God's word. Look with me at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, I think this phrase is very pregnant and we could probably go on for hours about it. But let me give you a little bit what I think Jesus means when he says that he has come to fulfill the law. First, Jesus fulfilled the law and that Jesus was the first human and the only human in human history to totally obeyed the moral demands of the law, not just externally, but also internally. And so Jesus filled, fulfilled the law's commands and that he perfectly obeyed it. And the reason why this is so important is because Jesus did not just fulfill the law's demands for himself, he fulfilled it for all who trusted in him. You see, there are two ways to heaven, two ways to salvation. The first way is by perfect obedience by being completely sinless before God in your actions, in your head, in your heart, to never sin, never mess up. If that's where you sit today, if that's where you think you sit today, give me just like 30 seconds with you and I'll disprove you. Then there is the other way of salvation, which really for us is the only way of salvation. And that is not having a righteousness of our own. It's not fulfilling the law of our own merit but for one to fulfill the law on our behalf. Let me illustrate this way. Let's pretend I'm in high school and I decide, you know what? I want to go to Harvard and I want to get a scholarship to Harvard. And so I, I pay a guy and I say, hey, as we go into this test, would you write my name on your test and I'll write your name on my test, right? Like pick some guy who I know is a genius and we go in there and he writes his name, my name on his test and I write his name on my test and we fill it out. And we come out of the ACT and I get a 36 because he wrote my name on his test. And he gets a 16 because he wrote my name on his test. You see, if I made it to Harvard that way and I got scholarships and I got my whole way paid for, it would not be on me fulfilling their demands, but someone else fulfilling their demands. Now, just to be clear, that is cheating. <laughs> and yet God does something very similar and calls it grace. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law's demands on our behalf. We had no hope in and of ourselves to fulfill the law's demands. There's no way that we could completely keep them. Even from a young age, we rebel against God in our heart. We become me-centered. We say, me, mine, me, mine. And yet at the cross, there was this great exchange in which Jesus took our grade upon himself, F minus. And he gave us his grade of absolute perfection. And in that great exchange, he took on the penalty for our sin, which is death and punishment from God. And we took on his blessing of being in right relationship with the God of the universe. And so Jesus fulfills the scriptures and that he fulfills all of the law's requirements on our behalf. But Jesus also fulfills, he says, the prophecies. This is actually a major theme in the gospel of Matthew. 
If you look through it, you see several occasions where, where Matthew is pointing to how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah that is to come. In Matthew 1, he says that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Matthew 2, that he would come up out of Egypt. And also that there would be loud weeping because of the death of many children. And that Jesus would live in Nazareth. Matthew 5, we see a fulfillment that, that the Messiah would go into the dark places of Zebulun and Naphtali to bring light. In Matthew 8, Jesus heals those who are sick and casts out demons in the fulfillment of scriptures that the Savior would take on our illness and our disease. Matthew 12, Jesus fulfills the prophecies that the Savior would proclaim freedom to the Gentiles. Matthew 13, Jesus fulfills the parable, the, excuse me, the prophecy that they would hear and not understand by speaking in parables. Matthew 21, Jesus rode into Jerusalem to fulfill the scriptures. And finally, Matthew 26, when Jesus was being arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and led away to his crucifixion, and Peter pulls out a sword to cut off the ear, Jesus says to him, put it away. He says, all this has taken place that the scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. See, not only was the law fulfilled in Jesus, but all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, Jesus is not only saying he is all about the Bible, Jesus is saying all the Bible is about him. This means we can now read the Old Testament with Jesus-colored glasses on. We can read it knowing that all of it points to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Sixth Sense. If you haven't, I'm going to spoil it for you. You had 15 years to watch it. I don't feel guilty. Maybe more. I don't know how old it is. <clears throat> but in the sixth sense, there's this character played by Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis is an investigator. I haven't seen it, so it might be a little bit foggy. But, but Bruce Willis is an investigator. And he starts uh, interacting with this kid who says he sees dead people. And so Bruce is talking to this kid. He's going into this kid's home. And he's, he's investigating these different things. But then you come to the end of the movie. And then there's a big aha moment in which we find out that Bruce Willis himself is dead. And so, so we see that. And with this news at the very end of the movie, we kind of think back through the whole movie, don't we? Oh, wait, those people never talked to him, even though they were in the same room. That's because he was dead. And so we take the finality of that movie and we put it back into the rest of the movie to understand it. In the same way, we get to take the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Why don't we sacrifice animals anymore? Because it all pointed to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. Not only is Jesus all about the Bible, but the Bible is all about Jesus. It has been said in this way, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed in all of the prophecies and sacrifices and laws. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed because Jesus fulfills all of it. Then we move on in verse 18, and it gets even better. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is not telling us, not only telling his disciples that the entire Bible has come true, but that the entire Bible will come true. He is pointing us to the future, to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth and saying all of it, the kingdom of God will come in completion 
upon Christ's return. Philip Brooks once described the Bible as a telescope. And he said, if you look at a telescope, all you see is a telescope. But if you look through a telescope, you will see a world that is beyond. See, if we merely look at the Bible as a bunch of words, or as a decoration, or as a holy file cabinet, we will only see a book. But if we look into the Bible and look through the Bible, we will see a future glory that we are destined for. A new heavens, a new earth, where there will, the law will be written on men's hearts and we will know it completely in and within ourselves and we will live it out just as Adam did before the fall. And so we are to treasure God's word in our heart and we are to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Let me end with this. There's a there's a poem that was written that I think is, is a really helpful synopsis of what Jesus is teaching us here today. And I want to read it to you. He says this. This book, talking about the Bible, this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven open and gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for all eternity. How do you view the Bible? Do you respect it? Do you love it? Do you cherish it? We're to read it, obey it, and delight in it because it is a gift from God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have a standard of truth that we can live by. That truth is not always changing from culture to culture and, and emotion to emotion, but it is set down firmly in your word, God. We praise you for that, Lord. We praise you that you have come in your son Jesus to fulfill it on our behalf because we could never do it, Lord. We are too weak and too sinful, and yet you have come and fulfilled the law's demands on our behalf that we could become your children, that we could become your delight, and that we could enter into a relationship with you. Lord, as we turn to your table this morning, we are reminded of the penalty for our disobedience, the penalty for our sin, that it is death. But we are also reminded that Christ took the penalty for us and that in Christ, we are righteous as if we had never sinned and you treat us according to Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.